0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Here's the second of three episodes following the fact and the fiction of a legend behind legends. We're going to spend a little time away from the island in this episode, but be sure that it'll all circle back around. Our hero, Harroward, well, his legend is yet to be created. Today's episode, episode 91, is entitled, The Sack of Peterborough. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hereward, our hero, having just heard word of his father's passing, appreciatively declines the offer from Viking leader in Waterford and his Cornish princess, and he sets sail back east, toward England, toward home. But sadly, Hereward would never make it to wish his father safe passage to the afterlife, to pay his respects, because of a storm in the Irish Sea that blew him off course. He ended up, well, uh, nowhere even remotely near Lincolnshire, to be quite honest about it. In fact, I'd venture that Hereward might be the only person in history that sailed from Ireland across the Irish Sea to northwestern Mercia and ended up in Flanders by way of the Orkneys. I'll give you a moment. The uh, the mental gymnastics to work that one out could take a minute, believe me. So yeah, Flanders. And thus ends the adventures of Harroward in Cornwall and Ireland. Or at least the romanticized, cobbled-together, wishy-washy versions of his time in Cornwall and Ireland. Either way, not a bad start to a legend, I have to admit. He's wrestled a bear... Saved two ladies in need, one from a man of a bear and the other from a bear of a man. He filled the emotional bucket to the brim of some love struck Viking in Ireland, built a reputation as a formidable fighter, came out to the world as having the most angelic voice of his time, and a progenitor of CIA level disguises. So far, Hereward of Lincolnshire is like. A love child of Beowulf, Friar Lawrence, Susan Boyle, and James Bond. Well, it seems to work for him. But here's the point in Hereward's story when his life dips in and out of historical focus. This would put the year around 1065, but truthfully, there is absolutely no way of knowing for sure. See, by the time Hereward makes it to the influential and wealthy County of Flanders, Shipwrecking himself uh, somewhere near St. Bertine. Flanders is in a bit of a kerfuffle. Those who listened to Patreon episode 10, entitled Flanders in Crisis, you know the background of what was going, on, what was going down when Hereward approached Baldwin V's court at around this time. Flanders had risen to unprecedented levels of achievement under the leadership of Count Baldwin IV and it rose even higher under his eldest son, Baldwin V. Baldwin V had married Adela of France, the sister of the French king. Baldwin V's siblings, they would also make serious continental inroads as well, further expanding Flanders' overall reach and scope of influence. Matilda, Baldwin V's little sister, was at that point uh, the longtime wife of Duke William of Normandy, we kind of know where his future's heading. And Baldwin V's little brother, the baby of the family, named Robert, was becoming known as simply Robert the Friesian, due to reasons outlined in that Patreon episode. Now, it seems how every nobleman in England for the last few decades had all but bought vacation homes in Flanders, you know, in case of exile. The Flemish court was accustomed to receiving the likes of Harroward. But they also became pretty adept in getting something out of the deal, too. Remember, reputations very often precede the person and word of Harrowood's exploits in Cornwall, and supposedly in Ireland as well, according to that other version of the legend. Well, these prompted Count Baldwin V to happily offer, in exchange for a safe exile, a place in his military. All of this so far, it, it can be legit. We can consider it. We know all of this, save for proof that Hereward himself was, well, actually present during the mid-1060s in Flanders. This was precisely the sort of thing we've seen on the podcast before, this peculiar relationship between Flanders and England. It checks out historically, again, save for the definitive proof of his presence in Flanders at the time. However, I think I've found it. There is one piece of evidence that to- that is toiled over by historians. A Flemish charter was witnessed in 1065 in the Flemish city of Cambrai, uh, today squarely inside France. Now, this charter was witnessed by a man, as it was written, was named Hervidus, but that's the best we have as to proof of Hereward in Flanders. Now, going back to the language, hang on, hang on, stay with me. Going back to the language, like we did in the last episode, though, pronunciation is key. Hervitus, as it's written in the charter, is spelled H-E-R-V, V as in Victor, by the way, I-D-U-S. Now, that is clearly the Latinized version of whatever the name was. But in Latin, the letter V isn't pronounced as V. It's pronounced as a W, like W. Therefore, you wouldn't read it as Hervidus; you would pronounce it as Heroidus. Sounds an awful lot like Latinized version of Hereward, if you ask me. Heroidus, Hereward. But I'll leave that for the scholars far more accomplished than myself to make that ultimate conclusion. That's just where my mind went. But humor me, though. Let's assume it was this. This was Hereward. This places him in the court of Flanders, again in the year 1065, in the city of Cambrai, specifically. Okay, what now? Well, Flanders, as I said, was in a bit of a kerfuffle in the mid to late 1060s. And this kerfuffle, yes, I'm seeing how many times I can get away with using the word kerfuffle. So this kerfuffle is on the heels of another historically documented conflict in which Count Baldwin V, allied himself with a Saxon rebel state within the Holy Roman Empire. When the Holy Roman Emperor died, Baldwin V was able to keep his land holdings earned in the war, which were the regions of Hena and Holland. However, once again, the romantic seasoning is added generously to Hereward's tale. I imagine Salt Bay style with as much flair for the dramatic as Hereward has thus far been afforded. See, having the reputation he had, Hereward was enlisted to help shape up the Flemish army under the direct leadership of Baldwin V's little brother, again, Robert the Frisian. There was another higher up within Robert the Frisian's ranks, and he was named Hoibricht. And Hoibricht was seeking to win the hand of the beautiful young noblewoman Terfrida. Hereward apparently was minding his own business, traveling Flanders and other French provinces from Poitiers to Bruges, and providing—excuse me—improving himself quite the formidable soldier in contests of all shapes and sizes. Seems a lot like his his time in in Cornwall, if you remember. Now, during one of these contests, Hereward handily defeated Hoibricht, resulting in her gaze switching from Hoibricht to. You guessed it, Hereward. This news, of course, landed wonderfully on Hoybrick's ears, as you can imagine. Sarcasm intended. No longer in his homeland, Hereward was able to cast off his status as either an exile or an outlaw, and he was able to cast himself in a new light, one of mercenary. And Hereward the Mercenary was a rising star in Flanders. Therefore, he was ordered to accompany Count Baldwin V's youngest brother again, Robert the Frisian. See, some Frisian coastal towns and island settlements were refusing to pay their annual taxes, and this meant, with some success—excuse me, this met with some success against the count. By the time this tax-collecting venture was finished, word came of Count Baldwin V's untimely death. No doubt having ridden out with him, Hereward was close by Robert's side when the news came. And again, when the inevitable news of Robert's older brother, also Matilda's older brother, don't forget about Mrs. the Conqueror, Baldwin VI, assuming the powerful title of, Count, of the Count of Flanders. Now, this historically occurred in the year 1067. Think about that one year after Duke William's invasion of England across the Channel. Now, switching gears momentarily, Gilbert of Ghent is a name we haven't heard yet, but he was a Flemish bishop who was in 1067 in England. He had accompanied the the forces under the command of Count Eustache of Boulogne, Gilbert of Ghent was Count Baldwin VI's second cousin. And Gilbert was looking for some help in, uh, for William in subduing his unruly kingdom. And having heard of King Edward II's death, death prior, and then the subsequent death of that treacherous Godwinson king, at least from Hereward's perspective, Hereward finally found an opening to head home and have his official exile, or outlawry whatever it was, Removed once and for all, Hereward was eager to return home. There's one little detail that plays into Hereward's hand here. He was an exiled. He was exiled partly for standing up against the powerful Godwinsons, and now the most powerful man in England was the man who had defeated the head of the Godwin house. A man who was none too happy about said Godwinson, taking the crown that he thought was rightly his. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So that played into Hereward's hands as he went home. Hereward heeded the call of Gilbert of Ghent and made his way back across the channel. By the time he returned, this Norman duke-turned-English king that he'd heard so much about during his time with the brothers of the now-English queen, was sweeping across the countryside, from sea to stormy sea, subduing the English people who had the gall to revolt. Now stop and think about how different England was from that, from the time Harroward first left Cornwall, well, even Lincolnshire before that really, to when he returned. When he left, the old system, for all intents and purposes, the system fostered and nurtured by quite a number of English kings for the better part of two centuries, it was still fairly intact. The political and economic and ecclesiastic systems were well under the purview of the king and his handful of earls, two far more powerful than the others. But there there was order in general status quo that could be relied upon throughout the kingdom. Upon his arrival back on English soil, England was a vastly different kingdom in nearly every facet, short of it still consisting of well, English people. It's really the only constant. But even that was in transition, if you can think of it. The very makeup of the populace was shifting as followers of Williams arrived on the continent in droves ready to earn the new king's favor and receive some lands in exchange for service. Norman influence spread like wildfire throughout the English nobility, fundamentally changing the very structure of it. By the Doomsday Book in 1087, the English nobility consisted of mere handfuls of actual English people. The vast majority were Normans, along with the smattering of loyal Frenchmen, Britons, Flemish, and so on. In addition to the populace itself being completely different, it it seems William's actions up and down the kingdom had, well... (laughs) had done nothing less than destroy and ravage the fields and forests and towns Hereward had grown up in. I mean, who does this Norman bastard think he is, anyway? These were Hereward's lands to terrorize, not his. We all know the ways England was changing, and it must have hit Hereward like a brick to the head. Despite all of this, if if Hereward wanted to return home, he would have to play by the new rules that living at home entailed. Having again hitched a ride with the forces with Gilbert of Ghent, he more or less comfortably made his way to the Midlands and then on to Lincolnshire. But what he was forced to do on the little journey might have been, well, jarring to to this returning prodigal son. Remember whose side Gilbert of Ghent was on. Along the way, Hereward participated in several skirmishes and raids and shows of force aimed at the various mini-rebellions that both made it into the records and certainly those we only hear whispers of. Not everything made it into the records. We have to remember that. There was far more at play. Eventually, he arrived back home after years of absence. Now tell me if this sounds familiar. Stop me if you've heard this one. Young man leaves home. Young man gains invaluable experience as a warrior while away. Young man returns home to a fatherless home and a land no longer within his direct control. Huh. Sounds a bit like Robin Hood, right? Well, see, Harroword the Wake was a full century and a half before Robin Hood was reportedly to have lived. Do you remember when I referred to Harroward as... The legend behind legends. Well, that's because Hereward's tale has been read, or excuse me, told and retold for several generations prior to King John's reign. It's Hereward's tale that influenced not just Robin Hood's story, but many, many romantic outlaw stories in the future, including the likes of John de Folville and his seven sons, Roger Godbird, the Cottrells, Adam the Leper and even Watt Tyler, whose story, personally, I'm chomping at the bit to get to. None of these figures share precisely the same story, of course, but beginning with the Norman Conquest of England and Hereward the Wake, this outlaw romanticism will emerge as an emotional outlet for generations of English who may be feeling the press from their government. And make no mistake, this very English outlaw tale will permeate all corners of the Anglophonic world, from the United States to Australia, Canada to South Africa, and all points in between. In the U.S., we have outlaws, mainly from the, the Wild Wild West period, but not completely. We have outlaws like Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, Jesse James, Billy the Kid, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Bell Starr, Sam Bass. The list goes on and on. How about, dare I say, Edward Snowden? The Australians have Ned Kelly. I'm alluding here to the truly unmappable impact the English have had on the entire world over the last millennia. And it seems how human beings make sense of their world through story, I think a little gratitude is necessary. Are the English perfect? Is English history wonderful and perfect? Of course not. But name name one history that is. But we can't deny the impact, in this case, of specifically the English. The outlaw genre, it's a powerful one, and this is a good time to remind ourselves of the question I want to return to by the end of this little mini-series following Heroward The Wake. The question is, what can this legend possibly remind us about the culture that created it and embraced it for nearly 1,000 years? And just a point of fairness, English culture doesn't hold some monopoly on the outlaw story either. I'm stressing Harroward so much because that's the subject of this current narrative on the podcast. But wasn't Rodrigo Diaz, El Cid, the Spanish national hero, wasn't he at certain points also an outlaw? Sicily has Salvatore Giuliano. Mexico, La Carambada. So yeah, we refer to Robin Hood as the ultimate outlaw archetype, but he wasn't the first. In the English tradition, it might be better to point to Harroward the Wake. A side note, I grew up reading all those Robin Hood legends and, you know, watching the stuff on TV, and I I just can't wait to tackle those on the podcast. But again, like Watt Tyler, we're going to have to wait just a bit longer, though. Now, Harroward's father was dead, and the manor had fallen into disrepair, not just physically, but influentially as well, like locally. Weeks of gathering information and getting things in order taught Harroward the extent... Of the Norman invasion over the last few years. And this undoubtedly had a negative effect on Hereward's opinion of William's rule, not to mention his opinion of William's ruthless Norman cronies who were nothing short of hell bent on impoverishing the English while enriching themselves. Consequences be damned. As word no doubt meandered its way to Hereward in southern Lincolnshire about the civil war in Flanders that erupted since his departure between Robert the Frisian his former commander and employer, and his nephew, the son of Baldwin VI, well, Walherward couldn't help but refuse the call for wealth and fame, serving once again under the Frisian, and instead, he kept his attentions on the situation at home. Quietly, between his return from around the beginning of 1068, at least that's our best guess, mind you, and 1070, while William was ravaging England from York to Hereford, and all points in between, Hereward was gathering loyalists, very quietly. The key to raising a proper resistance was to keep everything hush-hush, though. William was already on the rampage, culminating, as we know, in the devastating harrying of the North. Had anyone caught wind of Hereward's growing underground movement, well, there's absolutely no question William would have descended upon Lincolnshire during this time as well. And any legend of Hereward would have most certainly been lost to history. It just wouldn't have happened. Hereward most likely would have been dealt with quite quickly and quite ruthlessly. But that seems like a bit of a leap, doesn't it? On his way home, he's forced to fight his own countrymen. Okay, that sucks. But that's not exactly unheard of. Loyalties were quite fickle most times, even within a even within a kingdom. People fought each other all the time. If you could gain a foothold and raise your standing in any way, even at the expense of your neighbor, I mean, it's not exactly like it didn't happen. Okay, Harroword returns home and finds things have changed, like considerably. In fact, his father's lands, his lands, had been raided and raided and left unkempt. Now we're getting somewhere regarding Hereward's growing unrest about the Norman invasion, but still I'm not convinced he would just start a rebellion over it. He still had land. He still had wealth. He still had standing and influence. See, a year or two earlier, right at the start of the invasion itself, I'm talking like the days of King Edgar Etheling. See, back then Hereward's uncle, remember Abbot Brand of Peterborough Abbey, had publicly thrown his support behind the Ethling as opposed to William. Well, Edgar Ethling, as we know, shocked his supporters by appearing at the feet of William outside London and just handing over the English crown, leaving Abbot Brand and many others slack jawed and feeling betrayed. More so, they no doubt felt terrified because. Everyone knew William's reputation by that point. Who knew what this crazy Norman was up to? Abbot Brand was called to William, among many others, mind you, to speak his piece and, well, grovel for any semblance of place within the new structure. For some reason, it seems Abbot Brand was treated considerably poorer than others after speaking with William. We don't know why. See, Abbot Brand wasn't just appealing for his new king to grant him continuance on the lands that Peterborough Abbey already levied taxes from, but his brother, Hereward's father, having passed away already, that land was also up for grabs. Abbot Brand, it's thought, also appealed for these lands. Hereward's inheritance, mind you. Now, this isn't seen as a treachery toward Hereward, though. In fact, history has seen this as a mercy toward Abbot Brand's nephew, just in case the young man were to ever return. Coincidentally, however, Brand's Abbey, Peterborough Abbey, would certainly benefit from the acquisition of the estate, so it wasn't entirely a selfless act. Well, either way, William, for whatever reason, wasn't having any of it and did not allow Abbot Brand to take Hereward's father's land on behalf of the Abbey. In fact, William himself... He took much of it, something he was wont to do in those early days of the conquest. When Harroward returned, it said that he was able to retain 11 estates. Now, 11 estates is still pretty impressive. His income and tenants across those lands would still be something special, but the fact that William took some of his inheritance is possibly the straw that broke the camel's back here. Look at the other rebellions we've seen throughout the conquest up to 1070. And you'll see that they overwhelmingly involve William's policy of outright land theft. What was the impetus for Harroward quietly creating his own band of merry supporters? Why else? Land. And as Easter celebrations of 1070 approached, Harroward heard that, despite the agreement between William and the Danes a few months earlier, stating unequivocally that the Danes would leave England forever as soon as spring had sprung, calming the treacherous waters of the North Sea. News of the arrival of King Swain II Aethersen of Denmark himself brought about fresh excitement among the simmering rebellions that never really went away, regardless of how murderous and tyrannical William behaved. Having completely brought the North and the midriff of England to a state of utter shock and fear, devastation, William still insisted on needing soldiers. This is one of those little pieces of evidence that backs up a claim that might not exactly have made it into the records explicitly. Though cowed, some English weren't quite finished with William yet, and William was quickly running out of manpower. Remember, this is after the herring of the North, when a lot of people were like, well, they were over it. You know what I mean? They were done. They were like, this might have been too far, William. So they left. He was again quickly running out of manpower. Now Mark Morris in his book, The Norman Conquest, writes, quote, the rebellions may have been over by the spring of 1070, but the need for military service remained pressing, end quote. Why? Well, again, something was simmering. That friend's is what we call subtext, reading between the lines. Now that, and time had come to send his troops home, as I said. There were already a couple exoduses of soldiers over the last year, a rather large one immediately following the herring, as as we just said. And how these soldiers and knights were sickened by what William had ordered them to do. Now Morris even says, quote, William no longer had a grand army in his pay, end quote. And who was going to ride with him around the kingdom and continue putting down the inevitable uprisings? Oh, and what about those castles he'd ordered to be built? By 1070, there were dozens of them, most likely surpassing the number 50 by then. 50 castles and Mott and Bailey structures in less than four years. It's just astounding. Well, he'd paid off those fighters who left the country so he could hold on to any further income for himself and his most loyal. Then again, he devastated, at some level, his entire kingdom. What money was left to give him to maintain his control? The fields were largely stripped or charred. The villages considerably depopulated the farther north you traveled. England wasn't exactly in the greatest shape at the moment. Where would he raise the necessary funds to keep his crown on top of his head? And, I suppose, his head on top of his shoulders, for that matter. Morris tells us the simple and most obvious answer, the English church. The Liber Eliensis, which is the chronicle, again, of the monks of the church at Ely, records the following, From then on, garrisons for the kings of England were to be paid for, as a perpetual legal requirement, out of their resources, and that no one, even if supported by the utmost of authority, should presume to raise an objection to this decree. End quote. Well, there you have it. Contemporary evidence. William required churches now to pay for the army. Morris adds an interesting tidbit here, kind of tying today's royal family to the goings-on of a thousand years ago, just worth a mention, when he mentions that, according to the Abingdon Chronicle, that monastery was required to provide the manpower and funding for the entire garrison at Windsor Castle. Hm, just neat to know. But some decrees from an unpopular ruler come with a price. Morris writes, quote, At Abingdon, it was later recalled that the new Norman abbot Adalelm, quote, went nowhere in the first days of his abbacy unless surrounded by a band of armed knights. For at that time, many and widespread rumors of conspiracies against the king and his kingdom boiled up, forcing everyone in England to defend themselves. End quote from the Abingdon Chronicle as well as Mark Morris. Yeah. So William may have beaten his new subjects into submission, but it seemed only temporary. At least those were the prevailing winds of the time. And it's a good thing William acted so quickly to figure out that situation because by the time Swain Esterson arrived in in spring of 1070, he would need as much help to man the walls and fill the ranks of his armies to combat the reaction from the English, a reaction that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles itself calls rapturous. It's an interesting word to use. Not a great sign for William to have his own subjects rapturous about the arrival of a foreign king. To William, this says clearly that his subjects would prefer anyone else but him to be their king. Well, instead of locking himself in his room, throwing on an album by The Cure as he sat in the dark contemplating how bad his life was, all the while cyberbullying the English on Twitter, Well, William, instead of doing that, once again gathered his forces. In late May, he actually happened to be staying at Windsor Castle and rode north to the mouth of the River Umber, where it's said the Danish king made landfall and linked up with his brother, Asbjorn. Around the time William passed through London, he must have heard word that King Swain had already made his first major move into England. The Danish had captured the town of Ely in East Anglia. What's more is that the folks of Ely didn't even put up a fight. In fact, they greeted the Danish king enthusiastically and lavished him with gifts and favors. Once again, England turned optimistic about their liberation from William. One English nobleman in particular was excited to see the Danish king, of course, Harreward, who quickly dispatched messages gathering his underground gang, and they at once rode to East Anglia, to Ely. To meet with King Swain and offer their services. In fact, Hereward doesn't just offer his services; he offers King Swain Estreson a plan. It seems that Hereward has had his set set his sights set on Peterborough Abbey since his return to England, and he offered to sack the abbey and bring back a hefty portion of the loot to King Swain to entice him to stay and continue his war against William. Now. The fast and short of it is that Hereward did in fact sack Peterborough Abbey, which, given the context of William's treatment of Hereward's uncle, Abbot Brand, before gives this raid a new dimension with which to make sense of it all. Was Hereward really attacking his uncle's abbey, or was he stealing the wealth that William would eventually demand from the abbey anyway? Well, the easy answer is the latter of those two. See, shortly after Peterborough Abbey was fleeced by William two years earlier, Uncle Brand himself was relieved by William of his locally powerful position as abbot. So Brand wasn't even at Peterborough Abbey when Hereward raided. Having a family member as an abbot or even higher in the church hierarchy was a boon to the prestige of any family, and now Hereward, was even without that. And to boot, Bran was replaced by one of William's Norman abbots, thus removing yet one more Anglo-Saxon from a position of power within this kingdom. It just makes sense why Hereward took the opportunity, under the protective umbrella of the Danish king, to sack Peterborough and strip it of its former wealth and glory. One could quite easily sell this sacking as a personal vendetta of sorts, but it certainly was also meant to cut right to the heart of William's prophet. Now props to the monks of Peterborough, who gave every effort to save their relics and records and wealth, but Hereward's gang was just too much. Morris writes, quote, They then entered the abbey church and seized its treasures, crosses, altar fronts, and shrines, all made of gold and silver as well as money, books, and vestments, which they carried off in triumph to the Danish camp at Ely, end quote. Morris continues by quoting the E-Chronicle of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, which states, quote, They said they had done this out of loyalty to the monastery, end quote. Personal vendetta? Probably. Retaliation for overhauling the political and ecclesiastical power structure of the kingdom? Also likely stripping William of wealth that would, as I said, inevitably end up in his personal coffers, or his army. For sure. The sack of Peterborough could be all of those things all at the same time. And make no mistake, it was wildly successful for Hereward. Morris continues, quote, and his companions appear to have convinced themselves, if not the monks, that they were acting like prototype Robin Hoods, confiscating the Abbey's valuables to save them from expropriation by rapacious Normans. It was not, to be fair, a wholly implausible pose. Hereward and his men were tenants of the Abbey, and the conqueror's raid on English monasteries at the start of the year was still fresh in everyone's memory." End quote. Either way, very soon afterward, after the sacking of Peterborough, as William approached in retaliation, the Danes fled. Like, they didn't just run a few miles away, they straight up ran to the beaches, jumped in their longboats, and rowed their happy butts all the way back to Denmark, leaving hereward and his fellow English rebels who had just, keep in mind, just poked their heads above the trenches to fight a ruthless king on the warpath. Okay, <laughs> again, now what? King Swain II Estresen of Denmark The man who held off, I repeat, held off the legendary King Harald Hardrada of Norway for close to 20 years, promising support to the English rebels, gone. He left him high and dry, calling into question his original intent, but, alas, we'll just never know the truth of it. What were the English, including Hereward, who was certainly on the tongues of English rebels and Normans alike after Peterborough, that name, Hereward? what were they all to do at this point? But as Peter Rex writes in the English Resistance, quote, If that were all there was to the affair, it would be of little significance, but on reflection it can be seen to be a more serious matter than it first appears, end quote. This statement extends beyond just Harroward's entrance onto the scene of large-scale English rebellion to William's rule, meaning this will extend into the next episode, and I can't wait to tell you about it.